0: This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, London again. Clear skies, warm weather, the city in all its glory— Better here than in New York, a cesspool of mayoral mudslinging, and most of it coming from staff. Let's hear first from the candidate himself, Anthony Weiner, in his latest TV ad. You know, sometimes people say to
0: me, you know, you, this campaign is pretty rough. You may want to quit. I know that there are newspaper editors and other politicians that say, boy, I wish that guy Weiner would quit. They don't know New York. Certainly don't know me. Um, Quit isn't the way we roll in New York City. We fight through tough things, we are a tough city. There are people all around New York City who get up in the morning with a pretty tough day ahead of them and they don't quit. But it's really not about the campaign and not about the candidates and this isn't about me. This is about helping New Yorkers because they understand this is about them.
1: And now let's hear from the candidates staff. Handed to Talking Points Memo, they had the brass to publish the unredacted appraisal of Anthony Weiner's campaign intern, Olivia Nuzzi, as performed by his communications director, Barbara Morgan, from which I shall soon quote, and as I do, I will warn our producer, Catherine Caperton, to ready the bleep button. We've had plenty of press secretaries on this show before, and if you want to play in the big time, no matter which party, You've got to be a pro. So here it goes. And this is a mayoral campaign press secretary, for God's sakes, who should have known a lot better and have been crystal clear on her ground rules. She said, and I quote, I'm dealing with like stupid f- interns who make it onto the cover of the Daily News even though they signed NDAs and or they proceeded to trash me. And by the way, I tried to fire her, but she begged to come back and I gave her a second chance f***ing slutbag. Nice glamour shot on the cover of the Daily News. Man, see if you ever get a job in this town again. It should surprise no one that Morgan was quick to tweet out an apology. Well, In comparison, London feels so much more hmm, civilized. Baby Prince George of Cambridge is doing well, thank you very much. As we talk today, perhaps his first outing with his parents, William and Kate, at a charity match in the Audi Polo Challenge in the aid of Skillforce, of which the Duke is a patron. Other interesting news from across the pond, a fascinating section on the Daily Telegraph, part of Britain's 20-year rule, which means that classified government papers in the National Archives must be made public much sooner than they are in the States. Among this week's revelations, Margaret Thatcher in 1983 putting down the hammer on a proposal to make then-21-year-old William Haig, now the Foreign Secretary, a ministerial special advisor. Reading this, Thatcher underscored, no, this is a gimmick and would be deeply resented by many. But another gimmick revealed in the archives was a trip to the Falklands, planning for which was kept secret. Less than eight months after the fighting, she flew to Ascension Island in the middle of the Atlantic, then put aboard a Hercules refueled in flight to Port Stanley, the bill more than 200,000 pounds. The Telegraph said Mrs. Thatcher was then asked if she would like to give a good stilton to the civil and military commissioners or take some smoked salmon for one of the drinks parties she would attend. She wrote, quote, on reflection, not necessary. The Iron Lady knew her presence alone would send the message, no cheese or fish necessary.
0: After successful attacks last night, General Moore decided to press forward. The Argentinians retreated. Our forces reached the outskirts of Port Stanley. Large numbers of Argentine soldiers threw down their weapons. They are reported to be flying white flags over Port Stanley. Our troops have been ordered not to fire except in self-defence. Talks are now in progress between General Menendez and our Deputy Commander, Brigadier Waters, about the
1: surrender of the Argentine forces on East and West Falkland. Yeah! Okay, with that done and dusted, as they say over here, let's head back to the Rocky Mountains This is our third conversation recorded at the Aspen Ideas Festival against the glorious backdrop of Ajax Mountain. Today, we've got an extended conversation with Professor Austin Goolsbee, the Robert P. Gwynne Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Austin is back in the Windy City following his long tour as President Obama's right hand on all things economic. The former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers, the youngest member of the President's Cabinet, the trajectory took Austin into the orbit of then-State Senator Barack Obama. He has a fascinating angle of ascent. Now let's join our conversation with Austin Goolsby in Aspen. Here we are somewhere in the basement. Of one of the facilities here in uh, Aspen Institute, and I'm with Austin Goolsbee, the Robert B. Gwynn Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Welcome to Polyoptics.
0: yeah, thank you. We're We're down here in the basement. This is more my kind of uh, thing. I was outside getting sunburn on top of my head, so the basement is more it's more the academic speed
1: but growing up in waco certainly a uh, hot sunshine is not something that uh, you're afraid of
0: yeah well i was born in waco but uh, as a kid they my parents moved out to whittier california which is outside los angeles so it didn't get too hot over there. The weather's pretty much perfect. Going from uh
1: that part of Texas to that part of Orange County. I was just there a few weeks ago. Certainly the the land of Nixon. You certainly yeah. grew up in sort of republican territories, didn't you? Yeah,
0: it's true. My my mom who's my mom is quite liberal. Uh her view was when you she went to vote in Whittier there would be eight booths and the seven booths would say republican and then one would say democrats communists perverts you know indiv- everybody else was in the one uh, in the one booth eh? and that was the time of Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon and yeah for a little little uh, little after Nixon but uh, Ronald Reagan was was king of the day that's for sure
1: what did the, the work that your parents did growing up in in those circumstances teach you and eventually lead you to Milton Academy across the country.
0: Um, my mom worked at the phone company. My dad worked over at uh, utility trailer. They they uh, made the trailers of a of eighteen wheelers. Um, I'm not st- still not totally sure how I ended up uh, going back east. I was. Uh, I was in a, a, a kind of an odd school uh, in California, and around where we were, the schools weren't that great. And we just looked a, looked around at uh, at different places, and ended up kind of falling in love with uh, with Melt when we when we were back there for visits. And I uh, sort of ended up there.
1: And you spent a lot of your academic life uh, before getting to Chicago was out in. Boston area,
0: yeah, that's true. I was at MIT and, and uh, in New England, you know, for v- probably twelve years uh, of education. Moved around a fair bit, but uh, it was—it's a great place to go to school. Chicago's Chicago's really the place feels like home to me now. How did you mix the study
1: and uh, continued academic advancement in economics with? I would call the both journalistic and entertainment streak of your career that includes both uh, writing for the New York Times and also uh, your your turn on history's business?
0: Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, th- a lot of these kinds of things you just sort of stumble into. Um, it was always my view that the profession of economics, the field of economics, had benefited greatly from... From society, You know, whether it's the National Science Foundation and research funding or society gives a lot of credence to the to the analysis of economists that if anyone were is able to explain what we do, that it isn't just making forecasts of, you know, what will the what will the jobs numbers be or or that kind of thing that we've basically had a moral obligation to do so and i had written an op-ed or two for the new york times and then i started writing for slate they said could could i um write more popular pieces that were about research in economics and how do they apply to say policy questions or something of the day and i found that quite fun it i didn't find it i didn't find it that easy but but i did find it um Pretty fun, and from that I, I did I did some of those, and I was an old high school and college debater and you're, sp- you're, speech team and stuff. You're
1: undermining uh, your accomplishment as a high school and college debater. You're a champion debater. Well, and
0: I did a lot of it, and uh, <laughs> and so once fast forward, I stumble into the. I knew now President Obama. He taught at the University of Chicago and we had a lot of common friends and we end up um, i end up helping him when he first starts running for the US senate um, i knew him as i say back when everyone knew him as michelle obama's husband that guy who was the state Because michelle was the most important yeah, she, person in the family. She was a big she had a big time job at the university and was very well known. So i can't remember exactly how it started but it getting on tv and fighting with the with the ba- fighting bad guys was somewhat of a natural outgrowth for me i think uh, not that many policy people are willing to go in and take a punch and you know try to land a blow uh but but i was because it was kind of it was it was like back in the old uh, debate days
1: well if you think of that early team uh larry christina tim these were not people who were extroverted A at- well i mean larry's sort of Definitely an A an type, an but in terms of having a certain sort of screen appeal and ability to project uh, in the various media, that would have fallen on you, Austin Goldsby.
0: Yeah, some. The, 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 I, I was talking more in oh six, oh seven, oh eight. Right. You know, through the campaign, we had kind of established that dynamic. Um, in the administration, I think every every person uh, who's who's a senior in government has got strengths and weaknesses you know, when it comes to what, what type of audience they explain to best or you know, what kind of issues they, they talk about best. I, I don't think the team was particularly lacking in, the, in that ability. I think if you look at Christy or Tim or Larry or, or Peter Orzag yep. was there, you know, the, each of them in a lot of different circumstances could be persuasive, could be good spokespeople. It was a little more... And Tim got a whole lot better as things went along, too. Yeah, I think that's true. Look, as with anything, the more you do of a thing, the the better you get. And Tim's advantage was to have a lot of content. I think one of the reasons why people thought the persuasive capacity of the administration was not as good is... The economy's going down the tubes. Everything's going wrong. I mean, of course, you're trying to explain the how does the tarp work and why do we need to give hundreds of billions of dollars to banks? To to, that, that's not going to be popular. You could be, you know, whatever. You could be Jerry Seinfeld. You're not going to. People are not going to laugh, you know, when you're giving a big explanation of. Of why you have to take their money to try to prevent a Great Depression. In so, the 90s, working with Bob Rubin, it was stocks go up, stocks go down, the economy takes care of itself. And that was about all of our retort that we would use. Yeah, and you know that it, it's funny how things change. I mean, you look at the Fed, the Fed for years upon years had followed kind of the Paul Volcker style. And Volcker's a great friend of mine and a personal hero. Volcker's view was I'm chairman of the Fed. I don't need to explain myself to anyone. You know, this is what we're doing. You can go interpret it however you want. Now we're in an environment where the chairman of the Fed has a press conference to explain what they did. And then if the reaction is this, then they have a second, you know, other people give speeches to explain here's what they meant. And uh, it's just a different world, different media world, different information world.
1: There could be a whole book written up about the opening up of the Fed and what has has had to happen in terms of, Putting out information electronically versus just on paper, yep. having the chairman talk versus not talk. Yep.
0: And look, you, you see that in a m- minorous way. If you're chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, you get all the data, the economic data, the day before it comes out officially. And that is a is market-moving information so the, everybody's very secretive about it, and there's a leak. There's a list by law of who's allowed to hear the information before. You know, the president's allowed to get it the night before, and the secretary of the treasury, and it's but it's very limited distribution list.
1: Back uh, when you were a, a debater, you actually took on Ted Cruz, which is I, I think one of your <laughs> yeah. championship rounds. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it, it was. Um, he was a year younger than me. He was at Princeton. And we were the my partner was a guy named David Gray, who's a minister now in uh in DC. And we were the national debate team of the year. And uh and Ted Cruz and his partner took second. So it wasn't uh it wasn't just one tournament. It was a uh, it was basically the over the course of the season. Uh but it was it was pretty funny to see how people turn out or, you know, what what they end up. Now when I see Senator Cruz giving his speeches, I'll be like, that's exactly what he used to talk like that, too. He'd make that little gesture with his hand, you know, so it's, uh, it's funny to see.
1: Is there something about debate that is obviously great prep for uh,
0: your ability to communicate on the world stage? Uh, I know probably. Um, sometimes it's hard to say, I think, do people get into debate who are a certain way and then those types of people end up doing other types of things like that or is it debate that makes them that way um, and I think most people who are friends with are no debaters they've been asking them something why are they like this um, I think for sure most of the stuff that I did was public policy oriented it's kind of what got me into economics I, I was doing that in high school and I decided early on, I'm, the thing I was most interested in was economics. And so it had a pretty big influence on on my career, basically. Um, and I would say just the articulating ideas and having discussion, um, that's one of the center centerpieces of the campaigns of the government, um, really of many things. I mean, I, I think everybody who who gets into that stuff in high school, to some extent is, is happy they did so because it, it ends
1: up being useful. I'm, I'm fascinated by this turn for you on history's business. How did that come about?
0: Uh, I got a random call at the office, and I think maybe they had seen me on some TV show or something describing economics, and they said they had a few questions about some business history. And I'm not actually a historian. I've written a couple of economic history papers, but no more than that. I think essentially what happened. what it was they they'd interview the CEO of a company about the history of their business. And they had people who were historians, but in some sense, I think they were having a problem with follow-up questions. So they they could make a list of ask these questions. But if the CEO said something really interesting, it wasn't the area of the normal host, so they kind of didn't have a follow-up. So, um, so I would do these interviews. It was actually it was it was uh, it was quite fun. I
1: mean, it was. I was fascinated by Megan's piece too about uh, your way in the classroom of positing this notion of the AOL Time Warner merger, and uh, right. you know, you, you just you see Jerry Levin and Steve Case, the the picture of them in their press conference, the notion that the biggest media firm and the biggest online firm will join up. It's perfect, right? Right. And what happened to your classmates?
0: Well, the thing is, I since have gotten to know Steve Case and like him quite a lot. So it, it, was, it wasn't anything personal. But in this class, I was teaching a, uh, I was teaching a class about the internet. And it, this was at the height of the, of the go-go days of the, of the internet boom. Uh, and in many ways, it was kind of a frustrating class to teach. Because he'd go through and say, well, here's an industry and there's no barriers to entry and it doesn't, you know, there's no way they can make money and this. it doesn't make sense. And the students would say, well, this company's worth $5 billion. You know, how could you say that? So they they announced the merger. And basically it was a situation in which we had developed a framework of how do you think about when does it make sense for two companies to actually merge versus just doing you know signing contracts with each other and it didn't seem like if you followed the framework that it made any sense there was not really a synergy there was no um it it didn't seem like it would work and there was a lot of pushback in that class and megan mccardo who's now you know famous writer, was in the class and she was one of the ones defending the merger. And uh, and I still think at the end of that class and at the end of the class, I had not persuaded them. Uh, but I've, fortunately, history, uh, I was proven somewhat right looking back in how things played out. <laughs> the only problem was once the internet bubble popped, then I said, "Finally, I'm going to show the students that everything we learned was right." Uh, but then nobody signed up to take the class because who wants to take an internet class? Right, because so that's class, not where Polo the jobs Pop, are going to yeah, be. Exactly. So, uh,
1: so you live and you learn. So it's uh, it's sometime late 2003 or early 2004, and the state senator from Illinois is is getting to you via his wife and uh, Valerie Jarrett and and uh, Marty Nesbitt. Do you know anything about this state senator, and why does Professor Goolsby start doing anything for
0: him? Well, I I get a call from the policy director of his Senate campaign, and they had been calling around. When you run for the U.S. Senate, it is like a presidential campaign in that everybody's asking you about what's your view on this and that national issue. Um, But it's totally unlike a presidential campaign in that nobody wants to help you. (laughs) So she had called all these people to Kennedy School and various places— and they said, we've never heard of this guy. You know, we have no idea if that person's going to win the primary. At least call someone from the state of Illinois. So a buddy of mine, Jeff Liebman at the Kennedy School, gave him my number. And they called me. And they said, "Would well, you could you help? And I said, yeah, I know this guy. That's Michelle Obama's husband. You know, he's friends with Valerie Jarrett. I know this guy. Uh, so I said, sure, I'll help him out. And so I started sending them memos. They would send me, if some policy thing came up, they'd send to me, do you think you can you know, write up a one page or two page or whatever, describe what the issues are. So I started sending these memos from Professor Goolsby, and, uh, and then Alan Keyes gets in the race. And Alan Keyes is like way such a bomb, major bomb thrower. And the first thing that happens is Alan Keyes at a press conference. And we don't even think he did it on purpose. If he's they ask him, what do you think about slavery reparations? And he says that he thinks we should follow the model of the ancient Romans and waive all the descendants of slaves from federal taxation for two generations. So they said to me, can you figure out how much that would cost? And I said, I can't even begin to tell you how possible it would be to figure this out. They said, well, we need a number. So I said, all right, fine. You know, I can at least give you a spreadsheet that's defensible that you can say, "Here's how we came up." And it was, I got the current population survey and what is incomes growing and what taxes. And so then I asked them, you know, do you want a net present value? Do you want me to just add up forty years of numbers? <laughs> and uh, so I said, look, if you, if you do it this one way, I think it was like five trillion. And, and they said, oh, perfect. That's exactly what it is. they were like. This five trillion dollar plan. So um, then at, at one point, Keyes proposes replacing the income tax with a sales tax and exempting all housing, food, clothing, transportation, senior citizens, and poor people so that it won't be regressive. And they asked me to figure out what the rate would have to be if they did that. And the answer was like 85% or something, sales tax rate, if you exempted all of that stuff. So they bring me down to the debate as the weapon, but we've still... Obama and I have never met face to face. I've just sent in all these memos from Professor Goolsby. So I go to the debate, which is at the old ABC studio, which is right downtown. And uh, and I sit by Michelle and they say, and, the, and Obama says, I asked Professor Goolsby to look at your plan. And he says it's going to be 85% rate. You know, they got, so I go up after to the green room and they say, yeah, you got, you got to go talk to him. And he opens a door and he says who are you and i said i'm professor goolsby and he's and he says what i thought i had a guy with a tweed jacket <laughs> and a pipe what you don't look anything like a professor and he said and what is with goolsby anyway and that's what i say well look you're telling everybody that you're the skinny guy with the funny name and you stole my bit that's been my bit for 15 years and uh so we just kind of got along. For, but your for,
1: ears you know, are not as big as his, for the record.
0: I I don't know. So there are some people who say that's, that, that, that's not true, but I appreciate you saying that. A guy who has spent his career
1: studying all the great economists, figuring out the things that you're going to say. You said that you were introduced at some point to, to Larry Summers, so you understand sort of the modern guys as well. Uh, and you're beginning to make those acquaintances. Someone asked you to actually calculate what reparations would be. What? Have you ever been tasked with that kind of a a quantification? No, no,
0: of course not. I mean, it's nothing. That's not anything that they teach you how to do with getting a Ph.D. But I was was and am an empirical data economist, you know, more more focused on micro. Um, So it kind of was just a data question. And, okay, fine, I know what the data sets are. And like with this sales tax thing. I at least know of the existence of the consumer expenditure survey so I could go figure out how much of spending is on housing, food, clothing, transportation, how much is by senior citizens, poor people, you know, figure that kind of stuff out. So on any of the specifics, no, nothing like it. But the general aspect of go figure out the economics of X subject, yeah, we're kind of used to dealing with that. And, And in a weird way. That type of thing is actually good preparation for when you're in Washington at the Council of Economic Advisors. Some things are predictable. The budget has to be done every year in the fall, comes out in January or February. So there's a whole process around that. The State of the Union, there's a whole process. But then things come down the pipe that you don't expect. So we have a massive uh, oil spill in the Gulf. Well, not, nobody knows anything about offshore oil drilling or what are the impact of a moratorium on the economy or on the industry. And suddenly everybody's scrambling, go figure it out, go figure out what's the economic impact, go figure out, you know, if we changed it in this way and that way, you know, what, what would it do? So in a way that's, it's kind of good preparation. I would advise anybody who's going to go into policy to at least put themselves in some environment like that, where, The standard of evidence is way lower than in academics, but the time constraints are very intense because that's what it's going to be like. And in a campaign, that's also what it's like.
1: After the break, more of our conversation with Austin Goolsbee, the Robert P. Gwynn Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business.
0: Sirius XM's POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. I'm Julie Mason. Hi, I'm Michael Smirkanish. I'm Tim Farber. And every day we track all the news and events from Washington, D.C. and around the world. I
1: love politics. We have
0: discussions. And the best analysts in Washington. Just talking about politics, the serious and the absurd. And on POTUS, we'll give you news and analysis from inside Washington, D.C. With people who cover this story every day. That's the politics of the United States. Sirius XM's POTUS 124. Or listen on the Sirius XM app. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124.
1: This is Josh King on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124, and we're back at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, with our conversation with Austin Goolsby, the Robert P. Gwynn Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. So it's July or August of 2004, and Senator Obama is, uh, State Senator Obama is saying uh, it's not the Blue states of America or the red states of America, it's the United States of America. Uh, momentum starts to build for a run uh, that eventually begins in uh, early 2007. Uh, was the development of the economics team for Obama for America different from the uh, economics team for Obama for Senate?
0: No. For a, quite a long time, the economics team was was absolutely identical. I Professor think I Goulesby. might have been the only economist they knew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, – so he asked me in either late 06 or early 07. He said, Look, I'm really thinking about running. And is this some and the campaign's going to be in Chicago. Is this something that you would be willing to spend a lot of time doing? And at the time I said, Well, I don't know. You know, my research is very important. I don't know if I could spare the time. And it was my wife who said, Look, you always, you always, like this guy, you always said he was really impressive. If he runs for president and he loses, which he probably will, I mean, he's coming out of nowhere and it's whatever, but the campaign was right here in your hometown, would you be kicking yourself for not having done it? And I said, Yeah, I probably would. And she said, So fine, so take the year, you know, write one less paper, take the year and work on it. Yeah, meanwhile, five years later, you know, it's uh, it did that. But I just kind of stumbled into it, really. And uh, I think everybody who knew him from way back then, in a way, you wouldn't have expected this. But in a way, you're not really surprised. I mean, he he really was always quite impressive, really serious, really able to pick up on issues rapidly. Um and just had had really good judgment. So, I, so uh, if you'd have told me then, here's what, the way it would end end up for him, I wouldn't have been surprised. For me, I would have been surprised, you know, that, that the way it turned out.
1: President Obama has talked about this. Rahm has talked about this. Other people have written about it a lot, but. Uh, he wins the election, uh, November two thousand eight. Uh, transition begins. Obviously, briefings begin. The uh, Secretary Paulson is opening the kimono a little bit, as is the Treasury Department, and it's uh, it's a it's a train wreck. Uh, yeah. At least what you're seeing. What was it like for you in those in those months? Oh, it was
0: horribly stressful. I mean, you your description exactly right. Um, now, Secretary Paulson had started talking to both candidates, McCain and Obama. As things were going along, because he knew, look, one of these guys is going to be the president, and we're in really deep trouble.
1: Were you at that sort? Let's turn off the campaign meeting back at the in the cabinet room
0: when McCain and no, the, now that um, that was only people from the Senate office, okay, um, who were at that meeting because that wasn't a camp that was that was that wasn't, wasn't technically a, it, right? a campaign event, yeah. Um, but over the course of the summer, the late summer. And then as you go into September and Lehman and, and those things, we had organized for the campaign quite a group of, of advisors, you know, Warren Buffett and Larry Summers and Bob Rubin and Paul Volcker and, and it just like a major all-star group. And we had these emergency phone calls, um, you know, it started being practically every weekend, it'd be two o'clock in the morning. You know, everybody got to get on the phone. What are we going to do? So fast forward to December. Okay. Now it's totally clear to the economists. It's not yet in the data. Sometimes people have a hard time remembering, but back then the data had not yet come out on the economy. So the financial markets had collapsed, but there were people saying, this is all Wall Street's problem and there were people saying good you know they should be they're in trouble and they deserve to be in trouble it hasn't affected everybody else but that was only because the data comes out with a 1 to 3 month lag so the economists looking at the source data we knew this thing is going to be epically horrible but the public perception was not yet the oh my god what you know are we going to be okay so we have the first big transition meeting after they. There was a transition before they had named who were going to be the the officeholders, but after they'd named Summers, Geithner, Volker, Orzag, everybody, Romer, everybody, they had a big meeting in Chicago. We go to that meeting. I think it's the beginning of December. We have a big snowstorm in Chicago, so. All of these leading officials. There are no taxis. You can't get a taxi from the airport. So you got Paul Volcker, who's 80 years old, six foot seven, taking the L, traipsing through a foot of snow to get to, get over to the GSA building where the transition is. And everybody's been assigned one subject. So I'm talking about housing. I say housing's horrible, prices are down 25%. You got 30% of the country's underwater. It may go down another 10 or 15%. Impact on consumer balance sheet is catastrophic. Nobody knows what's going to happen. There's never been anything like this. Whew. Okay, go to the next one. Christy Romer says GDP is going to shrink at the fastest rate of decline of our lifetimes, we're going to need the biggest stimulus in American history, bigger than the New Deal. The biggest. You can see Rob's pain look on his face. Oh, my God. I don't know. Is he upset because he thinks he's upset that the economy, he's upset about the, you know, the stimulus. What, what is is the president elected on this meeting? Yeah. Yeah. So the president's sitting there. He's, he's taking his notes. He's listening. Okay. They go to Tim Geithner. Financial systems can in catastrophic decline. We've used the first half of the TARP. We don't know if Congress is going to vote the second half of the TARP. Even if they do, we don't know what share of the big financial institutions are insolvent. We might need another $750 billion on top of the TARP to prevent there from being a collapse of the system. So it's just one after another after another. So the thing finishes. And... I go up to Obama after the meeting and I said, man, I have got to tell you that that is the worst briefing that an incoming president has gotten since at least 1932 for Franklin Roosevelt and possibly since Abraham Lincoln in 1861. And president elect Obama looks at me, he's not joking, and he says, Gouldby? That's not even my worst briefing this week, and then at that moment, you just think, "Oh God, you do not want this man 's job
1: so in nineteen ninety two uh, when I was a young guy uh, as an advanced person working for President Clinton, and we were planning the transition peacetime uh beginning of the if you looked at the economic indicators they were headed back in the right direction, uh, none of the catastrophe that you describe in Chicago in late two thousand and eight and yet. You've also just won an incredible election for a guy that you've been friends with for five years. Uh, and you have the prospect of moving to Washington, D.C., I sp- presume with your wife and three kids. Um, or maybe they weren't all there at the time. But, but can, are you allowed – can you compartmentalize this to say the crap is hitting the fan, but we also have this great opportunity and I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. and start working in the White House in January?
0: Kind of, except it was piled on even worse because – I was living my, my, I was like a one man walking housing crisis of myself. We had a house and we had decided we were going to move from the North side of Chicago down by the university on the South side. And all the places down on the South side are very old places that need a lot of work. So we had, and, and they hardly ever come open. And so we'd found a place we liked and it needed a ton of work. And, and I said, well, you know, it's just going to be for a few months. We'll just have two houses for a few months and then we'll just sell the other house. We'll move right in and everything will be fine. Okay. Then the the housing (laughs) crisis, the the housing collapse comes in. We have Lehman, we have all this stuff. So then we're putting our house on the market and and I'm starting to get there. I'm like, you know what? Let's just sell this house. Let's get, let's, we've got to get to one house. And then, uh, Nobody can buy a house because no one can get a mortgage. So now I'm thinking, oh, geez, what, what are we going to do? But our the old house that we bought is is still not done. So somebody will rent that our the house we're living in, but they need it right away. So we have to move into a third house that we rent. And then Obama wins and says, will you come to Washington? So now we're like trying to figure out a fourth house. And while we're working on the housing ideas people are in danger of foreclosure if their house payment is more than 31 percent of their income and i'd say that to my wife but my wife's like our house payment is now 105 percent of our income so what does that mean i was like oh geez louise so uh that was just a very stressful time
1: in one of the uh end of first term interviews i think it was jim lair uh the president's asked you know the the typical question of what were the mistakes you made, or what, what could you have done better or differently? And he says something, and I'll get the quote for the show, but he says something like, uh, I, I need to do a better job telling them a story about where we've been and yeah, where we're going. explaining the
0: policy and yeah. that kind of thing. Uh,
1: what were some of the challenges you and Tim and Christy and Larry uh, faced with the president in terms of being able to describe in full what was going on and and the steps that were being taken and the fact, as you showed in your presentation yesterday, uh, you know, the line crossed at some point about job creation and it hasn't looked back.
0: Yeah. You know, he got the president got a little guff from the uh, Republicans for saying that as if what he had said was, oh, there are no problems. All it was was a PR problem. I don't think that's what he said. And that's in a I think what he said in that interview was absolutely correct. Um, And there were several frustrations uh, along the lines you're describing. The first is the TARP and the bailout of financial institutions was from 2008. And the banks had all the money before President Obama ever comes into office. So when he gets there, the canonical thing happening on the financial side of the house is we're trying to put in tough conditions on money that they've already received. And so we're saying, you know, why don't you give more relief to homeowners? They're saying you we don't have to do that. You know, we've already been bailed out. And That was totally not understood. There were a lot of people saying, why don't you just make them do A, B, and C? How did you give them this money? They already had the money. Okay, so that was one messaging complication. Second, the more than a third of the stimulus is tax cuts, which they did because there were a a lot of people said, well, let's get Republicans on board and they're only going to be on board for the tax cut part, so let's make that bigger. Depending how, what, depending how you measure it, it's either the largest ever or the second largest ever tax cut for middle-class America in U.S. history. A poll comes out eight months after the stimulus and something like, so it was a tax cut for 98% of America and for the other 2%, nothing happened. Nobody's taxes went up. It was a giant tax cut, biggest middle class tax cut ever. Something like 70% of people thought their taxes had risen and 30% thought nothing had happened. And nobody thought they had gotten a tax cut. So at that point, I've look, I have a PhD. You, know, you don't want to take message advice from me, but I just can't understand for the life of me, how is it that we can do huge things and the public perception is completely the opposite of, of what it actually was. I think that is part and parcel to the, the you need to tell a story. Um, and I think on that, the president's right. Somehow we needed to do that. But the problem was the only things up to the task in terms of magnitude were not very clear messages. You could do one thing and one thing only, and you could easily explain that. It's just that there was no one thing that's big enough to at all be some match for the for the rate of decline. Or
1: and you're not going to explain it in the three and a half minutes at the top of the news either. Yeah, that's fair. And true. so, Professor Goolsbee, uh you're not only an economist and a Ph.D., but you – you play one on TV, I think you probably have the record for the most appearances on The Daily Show with John Stewart uh, for any administration spokesman in the first term.
0: <laughs> yeah, that might be. Somebody told me that of the first term, I tied Ricky Gervais and Brian Williams as being on there the most times. That was the most fun thing they let me do in the government. Well, by far. so, but
1: that's a big risk for. Uh, for who's you know Axelrod and the communications people, let's let Austin go up to New York <laughs> I'm, I'm sure and, right. and go on the Daily I'm Show. Sure how, you're right. how does that
0: come about? Uh, I don't exactly know. They had they had several different administration officials on, um, and I knew a guy. My my old improv group, um, there was a guy who was in that group who's who's a very successful writer at the Daily Show. Um, and somehow they just they called over and said, well, why don't we try this? And the um, John Stewart is great. I'm not usually that into celebrities. He
1: criticized you a little bit for saying that Cash for Clunkers was going to put out the, uh, the oh crash-up derby that, business. That, that,
0: that was pretty <laughs> funny. But um, that, that wasn't in the interview. That was in one of the, the film spots. They came down and they found a guy who was from Illinois, actually, who... Uh, who said the cash for clunkers is take away all their best cars and uh and why were they going to why why were they going to do that and the best whether well, the uh Josh Gad was the interviewer and he said why do you hate truckosaurus why why do you do that? <laughs> and i said well why does truckosaurus need to be why do the cars need to be moving when truckosaurus is feeding on them all this all the cash for clunkers does is destroy the engine the car is still there uh but uh I would say John Stewart is every bit in person is every bit as informed and gracious and funny as he appears on the show. And and oftentimes if someone's a great actor or whatever their actual personality is not the same as the as the part you see on TV but I I really enjoyed getting to meet John Stewart. That was a highlight.
1: And obviously, they liked you because they kept inviting you back. And Axelrod was thinking that this stuff's working because you know Stewart is hitting a certain demographic that we've got to have for 2012. And you were I don't know.
0: I don't know if there was a strategic calculation or if I was just sneaking up there to to do it. But like I say, that was the funnest thing that. That happened while I was in Washington. So
1: on the unfun side, though, yeah. I mean, I've read a bunch of the the books. Uh, Ron Suskin's book. Uh, uh, there were a lot of tough meetings with the, uh, with the president, without the president, in which uh, you know people bared their issues and and pushed uh, various philosophies about how to get out of the economic mess. And you are seen as a person who. Would go up to the president and, and speak truth uh, and and no bullshit and not varnish the situation. Uh, where is that skill developed to look at, at the president in the eye and say, uh, "This is not. This is. I'm going to tell you something you don't want to hear."
0: I don't know. I'd like to think that 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 was uh, my attitude and I and I tried to do that. I think partly it had to do with. It was never my intention to go to Washington and find a new career. My intention was always, I'm coming here, I'm putting down what I'm doing, I'm going to go serve the country, and then I'm going to go back to what I was doing. Um, And when I got to Washington, actually on the first day, I filled out a resignation letter on the CEA letterhead, and I carried it in my wallet the whole time I was there. Because mentally, I didn't want to ever be in a place where if you... You, where you felt like, oh, I gotta say this because I want to keep my job, or I want to move and do that. I, I just didn't want to. I didn't want to be that guy. And I think for me that worked. For for other people, that maybe that wouldn't. But being able to have a little distance. I mean, what was the worst I'm gonna do? They're gonna send me back to Chicago. Chicago's like paradise. I mean, I, I've I had no problem. Uh, I thought for sure that uh, my. I thought for sure my mouth would get me fired when I was in the government. Just that I would be too outspoken and I would make somebody mad enough. Uh, Somehow I I made it through without being fired. I still don't totally understand how. Your
1: departure was preceded uh, by another member of the original crew, the chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel. You gave him a pretty special gift upon his departure.
0: (laughs) How did you hear about that? Yes. Rahm was always... obsessed, really, with these Asian carp, this invasive <laughs> fish species. Was which, that in the Great Lakes? Or well, they? it's not in the Great Lakes, but it's moving its way up through the Mississippi, the Illinois River, and if it gets into the Great Lakes, um, they're very afraid that it could wipe out you know, the ecosystem, whatever. And if it gets into the Great Lakes, where it would happen is in the city of Chicago, where the Chicago River locks intersect with Lake Michigan, and that's why Ron was always uh, quite concerned about it. So, Rom once gave a dead fish to a pollster who he was mad at, um, and so when he left to go run for mayor, I called all around and I located a guy to send me a dead carp, which I then brought to the senior staff meeting at the White House. Yeah, to first make it through I had to get the West. It through exact the security, tribe, right? yeah, was a barricade, and the Secret Service dog sniffed it, and you know, you know it gave me a hard time, but they uh, they let me bring it through, and I and a. And I wrapped it in a nice box, and and I said, uh, I said, Rom, you know, all the policy people got together, and we got you this present because we wanted you to know how we felt about you. And he was like, really? You got me this present? And he opens it up, and, you know, with a little more colorful language, this is a dead fish. <laughs> I said, oh, no, it's not just any dead fish, Rom. This is a dead <laughs> carp, which and, and it's not from the city of Chicago. You can't even find this thing. And... Uh, so Ram so eventually got his own dead fish, thanks to yeah, Austin. Yeah, he got his dead fish, but actually his chief of staff called my chief. There's a guy whose job is chief of staff to the chief of staff. That guy called my chief of staff. Is that Emmett Bellavio
1: or someone before
0: the, Emmett? No, this is uh, John Sweeney. Yeah. And uh, and he says, uh, Ram came back and told us what happened. Said, that was one of the most thoughtful gifts anyone's ever given him. So, that's you know that's that's Washington for you. Say you gave a guy a dead fish. It's like that Really, you really understand
1: me. He could have actually brought it to a taxidermist. Taxidermist got it stuck. It got could it be enough. it right. Could be the mayor's now, office right now. I'm
0: still um, since now I'm back in Chicago and, and he is the mayor. I'm pestering him. I, I've been out to do it and I can show you a picture here. Uh, I went out to a place where they aerial bowfish these carp they rev the motor the fish jump in the air and they fire a bow and arrow at them it's way harder than it looks um but i keep telling the mayor that he's got to come out with me to shoot at those fish and he says he does want to do it so the
1: mayor has his uh, idf training his ballet training he can certainly (laughs) handle this so
0: we'll see i bet he would be pretty good i hadn't thought about that he may show me up uh Doing it, but if, if it happens, I'm going to tell you.
1: We've uh, Arun tra- Arun Chaudhry is a very good friend of the show. He's yeah. been on a couple of times, I and I think he's a, a revolutionary in many ways. And President Obama has sort of poked uh, uncomfortable fun at himself at the White House Correspondents' Dinner many times for the 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 criticism that. You may get with new technology. The White House can communicate its own message uh, more effectively or directly to people who are most interested. And I was always fascinated by how you almost made uh, the White used White House TV in, a, in the form of a TED talk, using whiteboards yeah, right. and ability to communicate.
0: That, that, I think that's exactly right. right.
1: I mean, tough, tough issues that, again, don't lend themselves
0: to three and a half minutes on the news.
1: But and, if you can do and it that yourself. that was
0: kind of the, that, that was the goal. We didn't know if it was going to work. And I think it was a runs idea. And, but certainly the new media people, it came from them. And they said, let's try this. Keep and I was, I was a little, sus- I was like, I don't know, this, this is going to look like a UPS ad. I, I don't know if it's going to work. And they said, well, let's just try it and see. But it was exactly what you say. It allowed, um, it allowed going into more depth about a policy than you normally could do if you just went on and had an interview. Because the actual content that you get to present when they're asking you questions on a five minute spot is very little. You know, you doing out of 60 seconds of content. And this thing, you know, might be three to five minutes where you could go through, here's what we did, here's why we did it, it's A, B, C, you know, and be done. And uh, that was really good fun. And I I, th- I think they should do more of those. They haven't they haven't um, done as many, you know, since.
1: Well, they don't quite have a Professor Goolsby who's. Professor Goolsbee. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you have a passion for communicating, you have a passion for teaching. So obviously it was, it was in, on display in your White House days. What's it like now to be back in academia? It's pretty great. You
0: know, as as I say, I always knew I was going to come back. Um, It's really fun being back in the classroom and with the students and the MBAs. I mainly teach the MBAs. These guys have the totally opposite worldview of the typical person in Washington. I really think if you scratch below the surface in Washington, there are a great many people who are ultimately quite pessimistic about the future, about the country, about the world. They kind of think... You know, we're fighting over the last biscuit on the Titanic, and that's what it is. The students are like, I'm ready to take on the world. I'm going to start the next Google. I'm going to do this and that. And it's just fun. It, it just keeps you young. You know, it's it's, uh, it's been fun being back. Uh, obviously, one issue
1: being talked about this summer uh, is the uh Coming into the term of uh, Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, there are a couple people that yep. you know very well who are being considered for it: uh, Janet Yellen, Larry Summers, Tim Geithner, maybe some dark horse people. What are without sort of giving any odds or where you think this is going? What would a Fed a Fed under those people uh, be in in sort of the, with the different elements?
0: Well, look, I think the challenge of the next Fed chair, let's say for a Four to eight-year window, which is kind of the realistic time frame. They're going to have to get through this modest growth period in the face of lots of fiscal austerity and fiscal drag, and then they will have to deal with the unwinding of the positions and the getting back to more normal footing of the Fed. In a way, those two things are a little bit contradictory, so it's going to be a bit of a high degree of difficulty to do one and transition to the other without freaking everyone out. And you you've seen that lately. You know some of the public announcements the markets can over signal. It seemed like they were sending, but I think most of the people on that list or You know you can add numerous others: Roger Ferguson or Roger or yeah. Cohn or you know Stan Fisher. All of those people have deep policy experience. I in my view. There are some times when you could pick somebody who's a bit off the beaten track and out of the blue, but this is not one of those times. You know, this is a, the Fed is trying to do something it's never done before. And a lot of things could go wrong. So I think you want to get somebody who's got some pretty deep experience.
1: I have not seen Gene Sperling on the short list, so I'll end with this question. Uh, you were long out of the White House, as was I, as the um, as Bob Woodward's most recent book came out talking about the uh, negotiations with uh, House Speaker Boehner over the fiscal cliff. Uh, and uh, there was a brouhaha uh, uh, that came up between Gene and Bob uh, in how it was being talked about after the book was published. Uh, Woodward uh, published an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, talking about moving the goalposts, and Gene took to his keyboard and started rattling off emails to Bob Woodward. What did you think of that sort of dialogue as you looked at it from 1,500— Well, first, so so
0: the the money quote was— Gene Sperling sent him an email. It, wasn't, it was an upset email. And the line said, you will regret writing this email. Now, Bob Woodward, as best I could tell, he got in public and said, and he didn't even say it was Gene Sperling, because I think it would have undermined his case if they thought that. He said, a White House high-level White House official sent th- sent me a threatening email saying I would regret writing this op-ed. Now, then it came out. And I think Gene even said, "Well, I was the person who wrote that." And if you know Gene, Gene is cares very passionately about this stuff. And there's no sense in which that was a threat. Gene was saying, "You will regret this because you were wrong. What right. you said was not correct." So I sent Gene when that happened. I was like, "Good for you, man!" And I know you're tougher than any of these guys. You know, you're. And uh, so th- I, I think Gene's he's he's had a good run. That was just one brouhaha. It Turns out he he and and uh woodward i guess are our old friends yeah. or something And they said they're gonna have dinner up. yeah so they patched it up so i think it was fine but it was uh it was pretty funny and i and i was trying to get uh i was trying to get gene to sign up for like a ufc match or something uh based on that
1: austin goolsby professor austin goolsby the uh robert b gwynn professor of economics at the university of chicago's booth school of business thanks so much for coming outside. aside yeah, this for a little great bit fun. and talking about the, your time in the White House.
0: Thanks for everything you do.
1: Thanks. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.